go. And Nehemiah has been um, a real eye-opener for me. I hope you guys are getting a lot out of it, you're enjoying it, and you're also uh, reading ahead, reading through. And I wanted to, to note that if you ever want the sermon notes, you could just shoot me an email or you could let me know, excuse me, um, here at service and I could email them to you. And I'm also taking a separate document and just putting all the scriptures that are referenced in the sermon. So if you would like just all the scriptures, um, I could give you those too, so that you could uh, look through those on the week, during the week and, and meditate on those. And so Nehemiah chapter nine is again, we're still in this phase of Ezra and the leaders sort of, they, they rebuilt the wall. And now what they're doing is they're getting the hearts of the people right. And how they're doing that is they're introducing the law of God, the books of Moses back to the people. And as they heard that law and as they heard the words, they were very convicted And on the very first day that they did this, which was the first day of the seventh month, and the seventh month is a really neat study to do in Scripture. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the seventh month uh, of the ecclesiastical uh, Jewish calendar, not the, the civil calendar, but the ecclesiastical calendar, Tishri, which is the seventh month. You have the first day of the month, which is the Feast of Trumpets, which is a celebration. We also have the Day of Atonement on the 10th. And then on the 15th, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is a really, really neat month to be resuming uh, actions as the people of God in that prototype of the new Jerusalem. And that's sort of what we have to look at on the big picture here is that the Lord is showing us that as the Israelites were redeemed and brought back into the land, they rebuilt the walls, the temple is rebuilt. Now they're in the city of Jerusalem. And we've referenced several times throughout the past month or so, the new Jerusalem. And we've paralleled this back and forth. And as people in the kingdom of God, as Christians, we could look back at the people of Israel and garner some really great lessons from them. And we could see very a lot of different types. And one of the types we talked about last week was the Feast of Booths where they, had a, they were reminded of the deliverance from Egypt. And so this week we're talking about another reminder that they are given, and that is one of confession. And so let's look at it. And this is oh, the first day of chapter, verse one of chapter nine is the, on the 24th of the month. Okay, so this is on the 24th day of this month. This is verse nine, chapter one. The sons of Israel assembled with fasting, in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Verse three, while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law, the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, on the Levites' platform stood Yeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanai. I'm sorry, uh, Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So, as you can see, the theme here is different than what we've seen in the past. It's not, they're not being told, hey, don't mourn or weep. Celebrate, for this is the day, the, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The, the, that was the Feast of the Trumpets. That was the first day that they heard the law. 
But now they are supposed to mourn and weep. Now, the expression, you may have heard it before, caught red-handed, it's an old-time expression, is said to have its origins in Scotland or Northern Ireland around the 15th century. In the earliest references of its use, the phrase red hand or red-handed referred to people getting caught in the act of murder or in the act of poaching illegal wildlife. And one of the many myths as it relates to this phrase and the origin of this phrase is a tale of how in a boat race, the first to touch the shore of Ulster, which is a northern province in, uh, nor- it's a province in Northern Ireland, it was to become the province's ruler. So the first person to touch the land, you are the ruler. So it's said that one con- uh, contestant decided to guarantee his win when during the close of the race, he is said to have cut off his hand and threw it to the shore ahead of his rivals. His hand was certainly the first to touch the shore, but did he truly win the race? So Israel, in their time of being rescued from Egypt, they also missed the point of following God, particularly following his law. As a matter of fact, they were caught red-handed in disobeying God's law many times. They, They went into exile for it, not only with the blood of the prophets on their hands, but also... They were trying to shortcut their way to God. They missed the Sabbath. They, they did that for many, many years. And they, the prophets were called to them and were brought to them, and they passionately tried to turn them from their ways. And what did they do? They either shunned them or killed them. Now, rather than authentically obeying God's law, living as the people of God in the land of promise, They only went through the outward motions of obeying God. They didn't inwardly obey God from the heart. Yep, they celebrated the feasts. They sacrificed their offerings, but their heart was not right with God. And God talks about this throughout all the law and the prophets. So what happened? They got thrown into exile again. But you see, this isn't just Israel's problem. We can't just always point back at them and see how miserable they were because we're no different. We're no different than Israel in our own personal lives. It's the problem of every single human being. Man's dilemma is his heart. He has a sinful heart. It's the core of every single problem and every single sin on planet Earth and probably beyond. We are born with a sinful heart. We are exiled from God. Now, God has solved this problem by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a bloody cross. And he accomplished everything Adam and Israel could not accomplish. And for that matter, what we cannot accomplish either on our own. And that is to be faithful to God from the heart as a human. I know we are covered by Christ's blood, his cleansing blood. We are in Christ. We are forgiven. We are covered by his grace. We even have a symbolic new heart. But the one thing remains is the battle with our wretched body of sinful flesh that we are clothed in and will be clothed in till the day we meet Christ. And it's such a burden, I hope, for you and for me that when we sin, it grieves us. 
It's something that we don't get like to get used to. Otherwise, we become callous. And see, when we have that attitude, God's grace abounds in sin. And again, it doesn't mean we take sin lightly. Unless we follow God's pattern for living a Christian life, his pattern, not ours, our walk will become iffy at best. The peace, the joy, the contentment that's promised in the gospel becomes quenched and distant to say the least. Each one of us are caught red-handed in our sins. So what happens? What do we, ha- what do we have to do to rectify this? Well, one mandatory thing that we must do, and this is the topic of today, as I mentioned, is confess our sins to God. Not just an initial confession when you come to Christ, but a confession, a, a life of confession, not a life of penance, not a life of misery, a life of confession to God. So how do we do that? What steps do we take to ensure our confession is authentic? Because I don't know, many of you here have probably come from other religious backgrounds where confession was a, just a thing that you did every week just to make sure that you could go out, you know, that the sins you committed on Saturday were forgiven on Sunday or the sins you committed last week, it's not a big deal because I'll just go to confession and I'll get them wiped away. That's not the biblical pattern. That's not a relationship with the living God. Getting our heart right is the number one most important need of us as a church, as individuals, as Christians even. And confession and forgiveness must take place in your life, initially and on a regular basis. Confession and forgiveness. This is the interaction. These are the linchpins that hold our relationship to God together and make it authentic in the light of his grace. So how do we do this? How do we do this confession? Well, first of all, before I jump deep into that, I want to just draw our attention to the first verse of of chapter 9 here. Because again, it says the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. Now, one thing that's very odd about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that they mention the Feast of Booths. They talk about the day of the Feast of the Trumpets, but neither of them mention the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was one of the most important holy days in Israel. It was when the high priest who was selected would go into the Holies of Holies, And this is the only time he was allowed to go in. Before he would go in, he would take off all of his priestly garments and all of his clothes and he would wash himself. He would put on special linen garments so that he was ensured not to even break a sweat when he was inside. He would tie a chain to his ankle. That chain or that rope would be thrown out in case, and it would have bells on it. In case they never heard the bells, they would know that he was struck dead by the living God and they would pull him out. They wouldn't want a dead body in there. So he would put on these linen garments. He would go inside the Holy of Holies with two goats. One goat for the atonement of his own sins and a second goat for the atonement of the people's sins. So he would slay these goats. His goat would be a burnt offering. That means it's burnt. It's not taken off the grill. It's, um, it's just completely burnt until there's nothing left. 
symbolizing God's ultimate forgiveness, looking towards Christ as that one-time offering, nothing left to do. But then he would put his hands on the scapegoat and he would impute the sins of the people onto that goat and he would send them out into the wilderness and the sins of the people would be atoned for for one year. And that's why the scripture says the blood of sheep and goats cannot permanently atone for sins because the priest was sinful and he had to do it every single year. But Christ made that one-time sacrifice so that all who draw near to him will be covered forever by his blood one time. But why I mention this is because the Day of Atonement isn't specifically mentioned in this text, in this book, neither in Ezra. However, the the, uh, Day of Atonement is supposed to be on the 10th day of the month. And so here we're on the 24th day of the month. Now, we celebrate, if they celebrated the Feast of Boots on the 15th day of the month, that would have left seven days for the celebration, one day for the solemn day of silence, and then the next day would be the 24th. So 15 plus 7 plus 1. And so 24th day of the month, we have to assume here, because of what is required of them in this text, that this is their modified celebration of the Day of Atonement. Now you may say, well, why, why is that, Pat? Isn't that a little bit of a stretch? Well, I don't know. I think because when they say they were reading through the book of the Law of Moses, most commentators agree that they went to Deuteronomy first. Now, Deuteronomy doesn't mention the Day of Atonement. Leviticus does. And so the speculation is, as they read through Deuteronomy, they didn't get to the Day of Atonement And then they finally got to Leviticus and then they figured it out and then they celebrated it. Regardless, what they did and the actions they took are very indicative of a a day of atonement sort of feast or I would say uh, solemn celebration of the forgiveness of sins. And so how did they respond to this? And this is really what I want to get to. I want to get to the meat of this. How did they respond Well, it says here they responded. Obviously, they assembled with fasting, sackcloth, and with dirt upon them. Now, this was a sackcloth as a sort of hemp or flax cloth. Has lots of holes in it and stuff. And they would put that over their heads and they would throw dirt over their bodies and they'd throw dirt on their head. And this was a, if you saw somebody doing that, you knew that either one or two things happened. Somebody died that was very close to them. Um, or they were mourning for someone uh, that they knew, like if a friend of theirs or whatever, they would partake in that. It usually was a symbol of somebody dying. It was an ultimate form of affliction. Jacob did it when he found out Joseph was potentially killed by a wild beast when his brothers threw him into the, into the ditch and then sold him into Egypt. They brought back a blo- his bloody multicolored robe, and his father said he was surely ripped apart by beasts, and he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he mourned his son. And so the affliction here is from Leviticus, and this is from the 20, or I'm sorry, from the 16th chapter. I would give you this verse. It says, this, this is uh, verse uh, 29 to 31 of the 16th chapter of Leviticus. This shall be a permanent statue for you. In the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, 
You shall humble, in, certain, in most some translations say afflict, the word means afflict, your souls and do not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among, among you, for on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you and you will be clean from all your sins. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest that you may humble your souls. So this is a day of affliction, a day of affliction. Now, do I, I'm not <clears throat> assuming that this is something that we are going to do. I don't know when you are, when you see the fact that you've sinned against God, there needs to be a sense of this affliction. Now, again, this is not, um, I, I would say uh, it, it's, it's not a burdening sin, but there are certain sins that we commit especially sins that we're entangled in, especially sins that have a hold on us where we wrestle with it and we're, we, we have success and then we fail. We have success and then we fail. And then we say, well, Lord, what's going on? Can't you just remove this from me? Can't you just take this? But you see, God is a God of relationship. And I often say he's not a God of poof or zap. He's a God of relationship. He's saved you but he hasn't just saved you for a reservation in the afterlife. He has saved you for himself. He has saved you for an intimate, personal, interactive relationship. And that is so important to understand because when you understand that, the, your sin should become a grief, uh, such a grief to you that if you could afflict yourself in the way of sackcloth and ashes and dirt, you would do it. You would fall, you, if, you, if you could fall on your face, maybe you are doing that. And that's a good place to be. To cry out to God for deliverance. And I promise you, he will deliver you. But God desires to see your heart. He desires to see your love for him. And so that's why on this day of the atonement, which for us, the day of atonement was fulfilled by Christ, when he sacrificed himself as the spotless lamb on the cross, when we sin, we must know that we are grieving God. And as a prototype of the new people of God, of the new Jerusalem, they have to have that interactive, personal, intimate relationship with God. It's not just about following the law. Now, the next thing that they did, they assembled with fasting, with fasting. Now, fasting, I'm not sure if you've ever done fasting before, but in Joel, it says, Joel chapter 2, 12 to 13, says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Not return to me with all your heart by going and bringing me a really good sacrifice, and I'll be happy. Nope. That's not what pleases God. The sacrifice is an expression of that, like our body is a living sacrifice for the Lord. That's an expression of our laying down our life for Christ because we love him, because he first loved us. And so one thing that you could do is fast. There's, there's several different types of fasting in the Bible. There's a, there's a complete you know, deprivation of food for a certain amount of time. There's deprivation of food and water. There's fasting meals. Um, you can relate, you can deal with that with the Lord. 
But I would say that if this is something that is, you're troubled with a sin, you're troubled with a burden, then fast unto the Lord. Take that time. But don't be like the Pharisees, right? Like Jesus said. They would go out and make sure everybody knew. Back at that time, in the time of Christ in Jerusalem, the market was open on Mondays and Thursdays. And that's when everybody would come in and buy. And that was when the Pharisees chose to fast. During the time, everybody would be there and they would take the white stuff and they'd put it on their face. They'd mess up their hair. They'd put the sackcloth and ashes and they would walk around looking miserable and be like, oh man, look how holy that guy is. He's fasting and praying. Oh, I want to be like him one day. He said, you hypocrites. If you want to fast, go into the privacy of your own home in your own room and let your heavenly father see what you're doing in secret. Remember, he also said that about what? Prayer. You see, none of this, and I, it doesn't say prayer here until, until they, coming up, they're going to pray with a loud voice. They're going, to con, they're going to confess and make a covenant with God. I'm really looking forward to getting into that. But the, it goes without saying that fasting and prayer go together. Fasting and prayer always go together. Now, I have to tell you too that when you fast to, unto the Lord, you will gain more spiritual power. You will gain more spiritual power. Not because you're harnessing some, you know, mystic, you know, shockwave or some electromagnetic thing going through the air that, yo, he's fasting, you know, send the power. No, but because you're, de de you're, you're denying the flesh, what ends up happening is your mind becomes more razor sharp and clear and you have a, a, a more intense communion with God. And so you then get more of a, you feel and sense the power of the Holy Spirit. And even Jesus said this when he was talking about casting out, when his disciples were trying to cast out that demon. Earlier manuscripts don't include fasting, <clears throat> but you can assume that it's there because it is very biblical. It says, this one only comes out with prayer, Luke says, but in Matthew it says, prayer and fasting, but then there's a little note that says the early manuscripts don't include that. But I have to say that fasting and prayer go together just like peas and mashed potatoes. They go together perfectly. Combine them, do them, and you will see that you will become draw closer to God. You don't have to, you know, some people, I have a friend that likes to fast every Wednesday and that's what he does. That's fine, but it's not something I'm saying do constantly, but I would say if you're in pursuit of deliverance and in your pursuit, if you're in pursuit of Christ in a more intimate way, this is the way, one step from a biblical perspective that you can get there. <clears throat> and so here also they assembled with fasting, with sackcloth, with dirt upon them. And then it says here in verse two, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, this is a really controversial uh, thing. We get this objection a lot when we're witnessing out on the street. People will say, well, God is a racist because, you know, he didn't let Israel marry other from other um, from other nations and other races. He only wanted you know, uh, Israel to stay when he, he destroyed them for, for not staying pure. And they're really misquoting the Bible. Uh, they're really not getting the point and usually they don't give you a chance to, to uh, explain it. 
Basically, in, if you go back to Ezra, you don't have to go there, but in Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 7, it says, Now when these things had been completed, the princes, uh, the princes approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. So this wasn't a random, arbitrary, you know what, I'm, I'm like, I just want you guys to stay with your own race and your own kind. That's not what it's about. It was about keeping a purified race, a purified seed, because of the promise of God, and because of the, what ended up had to happen, what had to happen is, is that seed, which is Jesus Christ, had to stay within the line of Israel so that he could bear the entire burden of the people of God on his shoulders. And if that became impure, then that would have been a malfunction. God is perfect and he is complete. But you have to also look here is that what they did is there's if you go back a little bit. It says um, that they did detestable things that the Lord would not permit. It says, you should, this is Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them, these people. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So that seed would have been blurred and impure. <clears throat> it also says that <clears throat> they were doing things that these were willful sins that these other people were committing in the midst of Israel. And so God wanted to clear it all out and have remaining just the law. Now, how does this translate to us now? Does this law still apply to us? Well, we know that the Lord says that every tribe, tongue, nation, language, we're all going to be praising the Lord. You see, when the gospel came, when Jesus came and the gospel went forth, all of that is now put away and fulfilled. The seed has already been, it's already come to fruition. And now it's populating the whole world. It's almost as if it's an opposite effect now. We want to go everywhere and preach the gospel. But here's where the principle lies. Paul doesn't ever negate the law, or does, or does Jesus or the other writers. We read in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light and darkness? Or harmony of Christ and Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever or the temple of God with idols? This is the picture of what was there in the Old Testament. That purity. See, it's no more purity of race for the seed to come out, for Jesus to take the sins of Israel and then for them to be forgiven and then for them to go out to the world. No, now he says, do not be unequally yoked because now... You are a kingdom person. You are living with the Holy Spirit inside of you. And if you get bound, if you marry together with an unbeliever, you are doing the very same thing that Israel was doing. You are becoming unequally yoked. 
Now, when this happens, <clears throat> this causes all sorts of issues and problems, as you know. There's no, I don't believe in missionary dating or missionary courtship where the one person is an unbeliever, the other person's a believer, and now this person is going to go and, and start to interact and, and have a romantic relationship with that person in the hopes of them converting. Can it happen? Absolutely. God's grace, God can do whatever he wants. But we can't go with pragmatism. We can't go, well, if it works or this person really seems like they're ready we got to start with the law of God. And I, and I say that from you from seeing so many relationships throughout my life that were like that, that just ended in catastrophe. And it, it, they don't get blessed by God in the, in, in the normative. So don't be unequally yoked. And this is what they did here. They took themselves and separated themselves. We're going to see at the end of Nehemiah, uh, a little bit more we'll get into this. But at this point, they're just coming into the camp. Again, it's a visual picture of the believers in the kingdom and the foreigners outside. And they are now trying to worship and confess um, authentically and biblically. And so this is what they do next. This is where we're getting to the meat of it here. They confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They verbalized their sins and they dis what that really means is, is they disclose their wrongdoings. Because I think a lot of times we, we think confession is just saying it. Well, Lord, forgive me because I did this. It's much more than that. See, to confess, it, it's sort of like this. Well, I don't know if any of you like to fish. I love to fish. And now that I have two young boys that like to fish, uh, most of the time I go, I don't get to fish. I, I'm the, you know, the untangler, the rehooker, you know, the, the sunfish taker offer, throwing it back. And that's basically what I do. But every once in a while, one of my children will snap their line and I'll say no problem. And one time it happened, I think it was Noah and he snapped his line and we didn't have any swivels left. So I tied a, a worm on there for him and I went to cast it out. But when I casted it out, the worm just went flying off of the line. Because I didn't know how to properly tie a knot. And that bait was wasted. But when you confess your sin to God, the word actually means to cast off and not bring back. And so when you cast your when you confess, you're casting off, you're casting your sins onto God. You're not just verbalizing them, you're disclosing your sins to God. And most important. You are agreeing with God. That's most important with your sin. See, if we just say our, we're sorry, but we're not really agreeing with God on the depth of what our sin means to him and to Christ on the cross, it's not going to be an authentic confession. <clears throat> now, I want to address one other thing here. What about the sins of their fathers? What about the sins of their fathers? See, there's a, another apparent contradiction in Scripture. Because here we have in um, Ezekiel 18.20, it says, and the whole chapter of eight, chapter 18 of Ezekiel is, is basically about this. I'm, I'm just giving you one little blurb with the point. It says, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. Hmm. 
Here we have, they were confessing their sins and the iniquities of their father. We remember in Nehemiah chapter 1, saying he confessed the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. But the answer to this lies in Exodus chapter 20, where it says, don't go after other gods, don't serve them. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so there's a tie in here. This isn't going, Lord, forgive me for, you know, when my, forgive my father for when he ran that red light and got into a car accident or whatever the case is. What it is, it's the sins of the fathers. Israel was continually partaking in them. That's why they were in exile because of the sins of their fathers. But yet they were still partaking in the same sins. And so this is not about confessing the sins of the fathers, but it is about being sensitive to this multi-generational pattern of sin. And I know that I have that in my life. If you go back on both sides of my parents, you see just sins after sins after sins, sexual sins, adultery, addictions, um, anger. I come from an Italian background, so you could just keep going on and on, you know, all the bad side of that, right? And so that doesn't mean that I sit there and go, yeah, well, I don't have anything to do with that stuff. No, that stuff is some is, was imputed onto me by example. So I have to be extra sensitive to the sins of my parents, to the sins of my grandparents, the sins of my culture. Sins like divorce destroys families. You say, oh, I'm going to get divorced because I want to be more happy or I'm, I'm not pleased with what I want. But then you look at some of the things that happen to those children, if there are children, or even to those people, if they don't have children, it tears the fabric of their spirituality in half. Does God forgive? He does. If you've been divorced, I'm not condemning you. If, you've, if you're a child of a divorce, I'm not saying you can't. The Lord has saved me. Lord willing, as of today, I think I'm still married. It's a joke. My brother, thankfully, is still married. And we have both always said, you know what? You know, we don't want to have that. We don't want to carry that on to our children. You know, and that's just one example. But what else? Are you, are you struggling and fighting with that, that could potentially is seeped in? And so they confessed their sins. Now, what happens if we don't confess our sins? What happens if we just keep our sins in? You know, when you look at some of the Proverbs about spanking children, some of them can be a little bit you know, they can put off some people, right? Like Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Hmm. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs twenty two fifteen. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And one of my favorites to my children is the blueness of a wound cleanses away evil. Get on over here. <laughs> I forget what proverb that is, but it is a proverb. But, you know, I'm not trying to promote spanking. If that, you know, that's your decision. If you want to violate scripture and be sinful, you can. No, just kidding. 
I, you know, I know there's, it's, it's never in anger, it's always in love, and it's never disparaging. You know, you're not to, you're not to be violent in that. And so, but that's, that's not what this is about. What this is about is confession. You see, a young child does not have the ability to confess. A young child, when they do something wrong, they know they do something wrong. They know they violated their parents' rule. And so what do they do? They try to get away with it. They cover it up. And what that does is it builds a calloused heart. But you see, once they get the rod of discipline, it gives them wisdom. Once they get the, the rod of discipline, it cleanses that dirty conscience. And it becomes, like in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It becomes a, a children that do not get disciplined, regardless of how you do it, tend to have resentment towards their parents. Now, again, certain children, like my daughter Leah, she never has to get spanked. She's never got, done anything wrong, as you guys know. Guys are sleeping today. They're, I think she's gotten spanked a couple times. I'm not sure, but it wasn't by me. <laughs> but anyway, what, what I'm really trying to say is that this purging has to happen. Now, when we grow into adulthood and we start to understand confession and repentance, this is what God uses to cleanse away our conscience. This is what he uses to refresh us and bring us back into a right relationship with himself. It takes away Satan's hold of bitterness. In Hebrews 12, 15, see that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up. And that's what ends up happening. We also will have ineffective and tainted worship. Leviticus 22.20, whatever has a defect, you shall not offer. It will not be accepted for you. If you come to God with a defective, non-afflicted, non-caring confession, it is not going to be worthy as a sacrifice unto the Lord. This is very simple. You come to him with a pure, unprideful heart. You admit your sins because it's folly to think that we're hiding anything from the Lord. I know sometimes for me, I'll start to confess things and I do it really like lightly. Like I don't go as deep as I know I should and I try to justify my mind. Well, God knows. No, he wants me to express the depth of my heart of sin. And that's what he wants us to do. Proverbs 28, 13, he that conceals his transgressions, covers them up, will not prosper. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. It's, what would have ever happened if Adam said, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. Give me your grace. I was wrong. He didn't do that. What did he do? He ran and hid and blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. And so you will not prosper. You will not advance. You will not make progress. You will not be profitable as you would be. Again, I'm talking to Christians here. I'm not saying your salvation is taken away. I'm not saying you don't have the grace of God. I'm saying you want to strengthen your relationship with God. Confession is the way to do that if that's missing in your walk. <clears throat> David says in Psalm 38, For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Misery and, and, and burden is all I could say. 
miserable, burdened human being is what I am when I don't confess my sins. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever of the heat of summer, Selah. But I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you can be found. And that to me right there is the close, the, the close of the sale. Because when you do hide your iniquity and you're running and you're, and you're turning away from it, you will feel the heaviness of God's hand on you because he loves you. You will feel the heaviness of uh, his, uh, the, the burden. It's like you're carrying a burden. But when you confess your sin and bring it to the Lord, it falls off. So my exhortation to you would be to keep a short list, keep a clear conscience before the Lord. He is a gracious God. He sent his son to take that sin. So you're not guilty. You can never, ever be charged with that debt because the whole entire, uh, uh, the whole entire sin that you committed, the law that you broke, the crime that you committed is now wiped away. It's expunged, gone. So it can never be back in again. It can never be brought back to your account. So why not confess and have a stronger relationship with God and see his glory, see his grace, feel his Holy Spirit, let the Spirit have full reign. And as we come right now to the Lord's Supper, I think it's a great time for us before we partake because we are commanded to examine ourselves in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. So let's eat and drink today together. But let's first just take a second and let's just bow our heads. And don't just bow your head and just be, I'm not going to look, just truly bow your heart and confess your sins to the Lord along with me, and then we will partake together.